Welcome to Biomarkers, an audio series that archives the oral history of organic geochemistry. I'm your host, Fatima Hussein, and I'm here today with my series co-creators and fellow organic geochemists, Angel Maharo and Juliana Drozd. For today's episode, we spoke with Dr. Cindy Lee, a professor emeritus at the Stony Brook School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Cindy Lee. Um, I'm an a organic geochemist slash oceanographer. Um, my career has started out pretty much in oceanography, then went towards organic geochemistry, and now has swung back to oceanography. And um, I work on how organic matter in the ocean uh, changes over time and in response to organisms and other things, physical and uh, biological um, impacts. To begin our interview, we asked Cindy, how did she get into the sciences in the first place? Well, that, that's pretty easy. My mom was really interested in science. Um, she uh, was a, she was the chair of the astronomy club and, and stuff like that. She was really interested in astronomy. And um, she went back to school while we were little. My brother and sister and I were little and got a, uh, the first bachelor's degree in electrical engineering at Arizona State, which is where we lived at the time. And uh, so that was kind of, uh, and she, she liked chemistry too. She got me a chemistry set when I was little. Um, although actually what I liked the best about it was the colors of the, <laughs> the compounds they give you, you know, green and blue and stuff like that. Um, but actually, uh, I took organic chemistry in high school. My high school in Phoenix had uh, organic chemistry, and that's where I first really realized I liked it. And uh, then I started college. I was 16, so a pretty uh, young and, and not sure of myself. And, um, uh, but I did start as a chemistry major. And uh, the, the second year, uh, I found out from my boyfriend at the time that you could work in a professor's lab as an undergraduate. And so I did. I started working in Martin Monk's lab. Uh, he's an organic chemist. And I just loved, uh, he had me synthesize a compound that we were going to do some NMR studies on. And I just loved having to figure out how to make it. You know, I had to go in the lab, in the, in the library and get papers out. And, you know, this is like I was 17, you know, just it was like this whole world opening up for me. And um, then afterwards, the, the best part was to try to prove that it was the compound I wanted to make. You know, because th remember, this is like 1967. <laughs> so I, I did use GCMS. Okay. And the GC was about um, six feet tall. It had a single uh, packed column. And uh, I put the, put the sample through. And then we, we had a little YouTube that we put in, in uh, a dry ice bath. And so I collected the compound as it came out, stoppered it, ran across the to another building where <laughs> the mass spec was, <laughs> the mass spec <laughs> one. And that, so that was what GCMS was like back in those days. But, but it, we, we did uh, prove that it was the right compound and stuff. And, and, and actually, that was my first paper, so with Dr. Monk. Towards the end of her time in college, Cindy discovered how she'd apply her love for organic chemistry. So uh, when I was a senior in college, I, I found out that 
um, you could study organic compounds in meteorites and rocks. That's when they were bringing the first moon rocks back and meteorite rocks at, at, at ASU. There was a center for meteorite studies. And I found out you could look at the organic chemistry of the ocean. Mm. <laughs> so, so at that point, I never really looked back. And I, uh, I went on to Scripps. And um, my advisor there, Jeff Beta, um, had developed a method for using amino acid racemization to date uh, uh, organic matter and, and rocks. And he wanted me to try it for seawater, to try to figure out the age of seawater. And, uh, and, and the idea was we really didn't know much about the length of time it took the ocean to circulate at that time. And so we wanted to really find out how old the water was. So he thought maybe amino acids uh, could show that. But of course, it didn't work because um, one thing that we found out is everybody used GFF filters in because this was nucleoporic filters had been invented, but they weren't common and they weren't used in oceanography at that point. So um, bacteria have D-amino acids. So of course, when you filter the water, all the bacteria go through. And what we were looking at was the bacterial uh, D-amino acids. But that was good for several papers. So. <laughs> For our listeners who may not be familiar with amino acid racemization, we asked Cindy to give us a quick primer. DNL uh, isomers of amino acids are uh, optically active um, opposites of each other in terms of their structure. And most amino acids in living organisms are L, um, and they can slowly convert uh, to a mixture of the two, the, 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 the um, equilibrium um, ending is a, a DL equals one, okay? But, but when they first start out, the living organisms have L, except for bacteria, which in their cell walls have D amino acids. So mm -hmm. there's a few other organisms that have D amino acids as well. So at, over time, uh, as organic matter decays, the L goes to D at a certain rate, and you can measure that rate in the lab using bones or whatever equipment, whatever you, you want to use, and get the rate of that and then use that to date, date the compounds. And it was used a lot. The radioisotope dating has, has totally taken over that. But so, some people still use, um, especially in anthropology, they use the uh, amino acid method. After completing her PhD, Cindy switched coasts and joined the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute for her postdoctoral research. When I, um, I graduated, I went to Woods Hole and uh, got really m much more into the oceanography part of it. I, I worked on sterols for uh, a couple years and then as a postdoc, and then when I was on the staff, I, uh, it was right when sediment traps were first coming out kind of in the open ocean. Werner uh, Deuser and Suze Hanjo were putting uh, competing traps in the Pacific and the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I got to analyze some of those and Really, that sort of became the kind of love of my life, the, the research, not just uh, the chemistry, but the oceanography behind it. And I really, at that point, sort of, I didn't leave organic chemistry, but I, I, it was more of a dual pathway. And I'm, I think a lot of people probably think of me as an oceanographer rather than an organic geochemist. So, But the sinking particles were the ones that were really the ones that got my attention. Uh, the suspended, yes, too, but the sinking ones. I mean, I like dissolve. That's I, all my work as a thesis was dissolved. But I got tired of you know holding up vials and 
looking you know they're empty but <laughs> so with the particles at least you could see them yeah <laughs> so um so uh, I worked a lot with John Hedges and Stuart Wakeham on the, the particle works and the uh, trap work and uh, we had uh, some great times um you know trying to basically look at what happens to organic matter when it leaves the photic zone. And basically, we didn't look at, we, we, we analyzed the, the phytoplankton and zooplankton just to see what the source was. But the minute then it became a particle and started sinking, we would follow it down to the seafloor and see how it decomposed and, and how things absorbed to it or desorbed. And so I got interested in sorption and, and decomposition. Um, oxic and, de and anoxic decomposition, that was a big area that I was very interested in for a while. And um, so, and really, I guess when I retired, I was still working on sediment trap. We also asked Cindy, what's the one thing you'd want people to know about what you do? The answer is a little bit different than I think what you expect. And I said, one thing that I, I think especially women should know is like, I'm not, I don't really enjoy competing with others a lot. I, I, I'm not into competition. So in my career, I was looking for something different to do from what other people were doing. And that's very useful as a scientist because you sometimes come up doing very new and interesting things, not because you're curious or creative, but because you don't want to compete with other people. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, I sort of have noticed this, I'm not sure if other women know they're doing this, but I sort of think that I see that in some other female scientists that I've known, is that you just, you're, men I think are, are trained from birth to, to compete with each other, you know, that that's a part of being macho kind of, mm -hmm. and, and women are sort of trained not to, and now that may be changing, in the past years but when I was a kid that was sort of the way it was and so I don't really enjoy competition it's, that, it's not that I'm not competitive <laughs> you know you know it's not not that but I don't enjoy it I don't enjoy the competition and so by looking for other things to do than what everybody else is doing you avoid that competition but you also do new things and as always to end we asked Cindy what are the qualities of a good organic geochemist I think they're pretty much the same thing you need to be successful at anything. You know, creativity, uh, perseverance, tolerance for failure is a big one. Tolerance for failure, being, a, being able to fail. And a good memory can help too uh, uh, because of all these compound names and everything. But one of my favorite people, um, Farouk Azam, he's a, a microbiologist at Scripps. Very, very well-known microbiologist, marine microbiologist. He once told me that he attributed his success to his lousy memory, his terrible memory. Okay. Oh. And what he said is he, he couldn't remember so many things that he had to come up with them himself. And he often took different paths from the people that originally came up with that solution. So he ended up sometimes in a different and a far more interesting place than if he had just followed, if he just remembered the path that other people had followed. And I thought, I, I, I remember, he's full of things like that. He's, he's an amazing person. And, uh, I, you know, so it's, it's sort of like, you know, you don't have to remember everything because if you diverge a little bit, you may discover something new. So don't worry 
so much if you can't remember. But um, perseverance is probably the, the, the number one. Because <laughs> basically, if you just keep trying, you'll eventually get there. So, you know, if you've gotten this far, all you need now is perseverance. <laughs> you know, you're in a great lab. And, you know, so clearly you're, you know, you're smart enough. You, you'll, you'll get through if you just persevere. And that's probably the first one. But creativity helps a lot. Tolerance for failure helps a lot. And there you have it. Thanks so much for joining us today. And a sincere thank you to Dr. Cindy Lee for speaking with us and for sharing her insights. And now for a special message. Hi, this is Kevin Una from the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. If you're enjoying the Biomarkers podcast and would like to know about upcoming episodes, then please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thanks for supporting the show. For our season one finale, we'll speak with Dr. John Farrington, Dean Emeritus from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute for a special episode. To tune in, go to summons.mit.edu backslash biomarkers podcast. Biomarkers is produced in the Summons Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm.